Well, this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 43, and I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 43. And if you've been with us, we have uh, recently started back in the book of Isaiah. We took quite a break, uh, almost two and a half years of break, actually. Uh, But we went through a little more than half of the book of Isaiah and uh, took a bit of a New Testament detour for a while. And now we're back in the book of Isaiah. And we are in chapter 43, verse 22. Chapter 43, verse 22 is our text for today. So two, I wasn't flipping my collar as a fashion statement. <clears throat> Some of you thought I was. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, here's just two main points from the text that was being made. First, God was saying this. I am the sovereign Lord of history, and you are my witnesses. I will send you to Babylon, but I will redeem you. There's bad news and there's good news. And then this, in verses 16 through 21, God said, I am doing something new. I will bring about the redemption of my people that they might declare my praise. And we remember we talked about a near redemption and a far redemption. A near redemption and a far redemption. Although the people were to be redeemed from Babylonian captivity, this was not all God had in store. And aren't we glad for that? The redemption that God promised was not simply to redeem a people from oppressors, but to redeem a people from sin and death. This is what God has planned, and this is a good plan, and we rejoice in that together. So after God had made these big sweeping claims about what he was to do throughout redemption history, and this good news that is coming to these people, look at what verse 22 says. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So, we'll stop right there just for a moment. God is saying, despite all I have done, despite how my hand has been powerfully at work in your midst throughout history, and despite all this great news that I just gave you about what I'm going to do for you, this is your response. You did not seek me. You did not look to me. You did not call upon me. And this is bad news for them. Instead, you have been weary of me. Weary. So there's just two things going on here. It's really plain, isn't it? That the people are weary of God, and God is weary of the people. Do you see that in the text? The people are weary of God. That's verse 22 and 23. And then in verse 24, you see that God is weary of the people. Weary of God. And we might think, how can one become weary of such a great God? 
How can we become weary of a God who does all these miraculous things, who loves us, who has mercy on us, who has grace on us? How could someone ever become weary of such a great, loving, wonderful, powerful God? And yet, we become weary of God, don't we? How does it work? How is it working for them? What is this weariness? I'm going to take you to Malachi just for a second. Just remember, they are all prophets of God. But Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, these are the major prophets. But then we also have 12 minor prophets. Um, It just has to do with how large their work was, okay, major and minor. But we have these minor prophets that are speaking at about the same time. And so they have words to say to Israel as well. And so I'm just taking you to Malachi chapter 1 for a moment. Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Let's listen to what it says about this weariness, okay? It says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be made great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted uh, and its fruit and that is its food, that it might be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and you bring it as an offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, declares the Lord? And so we're talking about the weariness the people have for God. Their hearts have become heavy and dull And serving God has become something that actually wearies them. It makes them tired. It makes them feel heavy. It makes them feel burdened. It makes them feel grief. It does not bring them joy. And said in a more simple way, we can identify, can't we, with a weariness at times that we can feel about serving the Lord our God. Is there anyone in the room, I wonder, who has never felt a heaviness about what it is to serve God? If you have never felt a weariness of a weight of what it is to serve God, then you have a pure heart. Your heart has been absolutely purified before the Lord, and you are serving Him wonderfully. Great job. But that's not any of us because we have hearts that are prone to sin and we have hearts that want to sin and so when we have a God over here that's calling us to holiness it's like Paul the things I want to do I don't do the things I do are the things that I don't want to do and there's this constant push and pull this constant tug and to be obedient to God with all of our heart can at times seem to us a burden And so I I say this because we can yet again have a sympathy towards the people of Israel, can't we? Can we have a sympathy toward them? Because look at what it was for them, offering sacrifices, offerings, incense, 
doing it such a way, bringing it to God. And so what did they do? They brought those things that were sick and lame and the stuff they didn't want. Here, just take our leftovers, God, because I don't want to give you the best. And said that way, I start to understand what this weariness is. Because when I only give God everything I have left over, which is no good, I say, here, God, take all this stuff that I don't care about, that is worthless to me, and I hope that serves you well. You do that because serving God joyfully and giving him all that you have with all of your heart has become weary to you. You have become weary of God. But that being said, why is God weary? Okay, the people are weary, heavy, burdened with these things of God serving him. But why, have the, why, why has God become weary with the people? They're weary of each other. You ever been in a relationship where you're weary with each other? That's not a good place to be, is it? I don't want to be in a situation like that where you're weary of each other. Things are not going well. But here's the relationship. God is weary of them. They're weary of God. How is this relationship going to be restored? As the reader, that's what our hearts should be longing for, by the way. How is all this going to be made right? If you're not asking that question, then you're not seeing the purpose behind it. How is all this to be made right? How are things to be set better? How is the relationship to be restored? How could a people not be wearied by God? How could God not be wearied by people? If we're not asking these questions, then we don't understand the whole point of the grand story of redemption. How is all this answered? In the person and work of Jesus Christ, who made all things right, who made it, so that our relationship with God would be restored. says in Isaiah 43, 24, just look at it. You have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Again, Malachi 2, 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, ah, how have we wearied him? By saying this, this is how you weary God. Everyone who does evil, you say this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, you bring a weariness to God when in your rebellion you misrepresent God. You misunderstand God. They were saying, everyone who does evil, God likes those people. Everyone who does good, God doesn't like them. So we're giving ourselves license to just do whatever we want. And so whatever you choose to do, don't worry, God's going to be happy with you. Does that sound like some kind of theologies we have? Uh, roaming around in our churches today. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you do. God is always pleased with you forever, and he just wants you to be happy, healthy, and prosperous. And that's it. That's the whole message. That's a bad message. That's a false message. That is not the gospel. How have we wearied him? You have burdened him with your sins. So to be burdened, to be wearied, we can see how these are parallel ideas, right? To carry a burden is to drag around something that is too heavy. You know that, right? Think of the Pilgrim's Progress and the burden he had on his back, right? Uh, it, it's, after a while, carrying a burden does what to you? It makes you tired. You ever carried stuff and then it made you tired? Your burden became wearisome. You see how the two ideas are linked together? So to carry a burden around for too long, you become weary, you become tired. So... The sins of the people were a burden to God and it has made him weary. 
Get the idea? Serving God was a burden to the people, and doing it for so long made them weary. Isaiah 63.10, listen to what it says. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. That's, that's really bad news that when God becomes your enemy and fights against you. Now, this is mentioned again in our New Testament, Acts 7.51. It says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Right? And so this was a sermon preached to the people of Israel because they were rejecting the Messiah. But we might say, as we frequently do, I'm so glad that I'm not like them. I'm so glad that I'm not stiff-necked. You know, you get the idea of stiff-necked, right? You try to pull someone some way or, or an animal, and like, mm, mm, I don't want to go. It's stiff neck. You get the idea. That's how your heart is towards God. So that's what God is calling some of these people to, that you have a stiff neck toward God and toward obedience. But we say Israel was like that. Thank goodness um, that's not me. Ephesians 4.30 says, to believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice that grieving the Holy Spirit does not unseal you from redemption, right? So these people are sealed for redemption, believers, and yet they can grieve the Holy Spirit. How? Well, just like the stiff-necked people of Israel were grieving God and his spirit. How? In their outright rebellion against him. Do you know that as believers still, that when we have sins heaped up, that this still grieves God. We have to actually have a, a good understanding of what our sins are doing and not doing because if we don't believe that our sins have any effect on God, then what is that going to lead us to do? Sin, because we don't care. It does nothing. It has no effect on God. So what does it matter if I sin or don't sin, right? But if our sins can grieve God, if our rebellion can grieve God, do you want to grieve the heart of God? Do you want to grieve the spirit of God? Then you should care about your sin. So this directly leads us into a conversation about sin because look at what verse 25 says. It seemed like real bad news at first. A rebellious people who wouldn't look to God, that's not good. There's a bad relationship. But then look at what verse 25 says. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. Now, this sounds like really good news and really bad news at the same time. Let me tell you why. God will not remember their sins. Let's ask this question. What does it mean that God will not remember their sins and how could this possibly be accomplished? Why is that? Well, I'll just start by telling you this. I was, uh, oh, just uh, at times I'll look through different articles and things that different people say and, you know, on a text that I'm looking at. And <laughs> I, I came across this. It was uh, I don't, an article that, that someone wrote. 
uh, for a seminary, huh, actually. Uh, so he, he was talking about uh, uh, this passage and about how God uh, says he will not remember their sins. And here's what he said. This is the much forgotten doctrine of God's forgetfulness. It, and it wasn't a joke. It was very real. This is the much forgotten doctrine of God's forgetfulness. And aren't we thankful for God's forgetfulness? What a weird concept. Because that, does God forget? Or maybe you've heard this, God forgives and forgets. Or maybe you've said that, actually. So what are you saying? What does it mean that God will not remember their sins? What is something essential to the character and nature of God? That he is omniscient, right? He is all-knowing. So if he forgets something, what does this mean? That he's not all-knowing. He forgot something. Do you want to serve a God who forgets? What if God forgot that you were redeemed? Well, I'm sorry, I forgot. I, I don't know what to tell you. I apologize. I'm not sure. I don't want a God who forgets. I also don't want, and just listen, I don't want a God who forgets my sin. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why that is a doctrine in the New Testament. So what does it mean, though, that God will not remember your sins? This is not a new idea, but it, it, it's an idea that, that comes around specifically in our Old Testament. For example, God will put all your sins behind his back, right? Or God will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, correct? So we, we know these phrases and we know this concept. What does it mean, though, that God doesn't remember our sin, that he blots them out, that he doesn't remember them? That is, God does not take our sinfulness into account. He does not call it to mind. That's what it means. To not call something to mind does not mean that you forgot it entirely, right? That you've had uh, just a, an, an intentional moment of amnesia. I'm going to choose to not remember this forever. Or is it that God has all knowledge and he knows all things, but he is not calling to mind the fact that we are sinful? This is how we are to understand that God remembers our sin no more. In other words, he calls your sin to mind no more. That's a better understanding of what's happening. Hebrews 4.13, for example, if you're taking notes, just jot that down. Jot down that reference. Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Does that sound like the doctrine of God's forgetfulness? Does that sound like a God who forgets? Or does that sound like a God for all people of all time that we are naked and exposed before him and we must all give an account? And if we must give an account, what does that mean? That he has not forgotten. It would not be a very compelling burst if God were prone to forget things. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Well, at least God forgets stuff, and he won't bring everything to mind. But we know that that's not true, right? So what does it mean that God will not remember their sins? How is it accomplished? Well, turn with me just for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. 
We're coming back to our text in Isaiah, so don't lose that. Romans chapter 8, just for a moment. And just look at just a couple of verses as it begins. Verse 1. As we remember, there is a near and far fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying. And uh, specifically, as we get into chapter 44, and it begins to talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, um, then we know that this is relating to redemption brought in Jesus Christ. So, Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so this is how this works. According to the perfect justice of God, sin must be punished. Pretty simple. All people have sinned according to scripture, so therefore all must be punished. Jesus took on himself the punishment for sin, and now all who have faith in him no longer take the punishment for their own sin. Jesus took the punishment for them, which equals no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So question, which sins are forgiven at the point of faith? I'm leading us back to the text in Isaiah. I'm showing you from the doctrine laid out in the New, Covenant, in the New Testament that it cannot mean what sometimes people think it means. Which sins are forgiven at the point of faith? Just the sins that you committed that day? Just the sins you committed before you came to faith? Not the ones after? Or are all your sins forgiven at the point of faith? Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, they're all forgiven. Well, we'd have to say, well, they're all forgiven because at that point, I am not condemned, and I will not be condemned, and I will be glorified. So all of our sins are forgiven at the point of faith, past sins, present sins, future sins, because then we would not be justified in his sight, right? So if God simultaneously forgives and forgets, then all of our sins from that point, from the point of faith, would not be remembered, including our future sins. You following me? Maybe let me say that again. If God simultaneously forgives and forgets at the point of faith, then he would also have forgotten all of our future sins from that point. Correct? However, 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. We should be familiar with this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay? If God forgets that we ever sinned, then he would not discipline us when we do sin. You ever heard it said that God sees us as if we had never sinned? It's as if we never sinned. That is not true. God does not ever look at us or treat us as if we never sinned. But instead, God 
treats us as redeemed sinners. He knows our condition, and he knows that we were in need of redemption. He knows that we were in need of a Savior. Hebrews 12, 6, For the, dis- the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Chastises us for what if he's forgotten all of my sins? You understand what I'm saying? The scripture is very clear that when it says back in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Let's understand, it does not mean that God forgets that you're a sinner, that he forgets that you have sin. But no, instead, God is very present in your life, in your mind, in your heart, and he knows it more deeply than you do, and he knows the sin that's there, and you are accountable to it. Now, if you are redeemed in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, but it does not mean that you will not be disciplined in the Lord. Understand the difference. God is very aware of your sin. We as a people should be mindful of our sin. God is mindful of our sin, and that's my whole point. God is mindful of your sin, and you should be mindful of your sin. God doesn't put it out of its mind and say, well, no big deal. My sin is no big deal. It's already forgiven. God doesn't even think about it. He's removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. If God doesn't remember it, why should I remember it? But if we understand it properly, God very much does remember your sin. He just does not see you according to your sin. But he sees you according to the righteousness found in Christ. If I can maybe say that a more simple way, you know there are two ways that God views every person who has ever been. He either sees you and he sees your sin and you are found guilty. Guilty. That's one way God can see you and that's, we don't want that because that means punishment and wrath is coming. But there's another way God can see you and there's only two ways. God sees you and he sees your, your sin. You are a sinner. But instead of one who is guilty, you are found Innocent based on what Christ has accomplished for you and the fact that you had faith in Christ. There are only two ways God sees you, guilty or innocent, but either way, you're a sinner. Right? Isaiah 43, let's just look at verses 26 through 28. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you might be proved right. Your first father sinned, your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. It got really bad really fast. God promised that he was going to forgive them and blot out all their transgressions and all their sins. But then it kind of came back into reality. We came back into present day, didn't we? But he says, as for you today. Bring me into remembrance of the fact that you find yourselves innocent. So, if you were with us when we were talking about our courtroom scene, right? Well, Isaiah has kind of momentarily brought us back into another courtroom scene. And here's what's happening is that Israel is saying, uh, we are entirely innocent, but you're saying that we're guilty. And he says, oh, really? Well, bring your case. Bring your case. And that's why he says that. Put me in remembrance. Because you think I'm remembering your sin wrong. 
I, I guess I'm a God who forgets. I, I guess I'm a God who doesn't know. I, I guess you know yourselves better than I know you. Put me in remembrance, please. Let us argue together. Not a good idea. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. This is a bad situation for the people of Israel. That God Almighty is the judge is sitting before them and he's saying, you're guilty. And they say, no, we're not. He says, oh, really? Well, then put me in remembrance and tell me what is true. Prove your case before me. Very quickly in verses 27 and 28, it's shown that they have no case, right? 27, your first father sinned, your mediators transgressed against me. That's it. That's the whole case. That's the whole case. You're sinners. You've been sinners. You're all sinners. The people you look back at as the great figureheads, sinners. Your priests, your mediators, sinners. And who are you? Sinners. Therefore, verse 28, I will profane princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is not good. It seems like very bad news when just in verse 25 it says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression. For my sake, I will not remember your sins. Where's that God? I want, bring that guy back. But it wasn't the right time. As it stands, you are going to be held accountable for your rebellion. So what we see happening here is God is just simply doing what he promised he was going to do. God will do what he has promised. Promised what? God is simply following through with the promises that he's made to past generations. I'm going to read for you out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 through 48. So it's just a couple of verses. It says... All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. This is in Deuteronomy. In hunger and thirst and nakedness, lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. God is simply doing what he said he was going to do. Do you see it? The people over and over again were rebellious to him. Their hearts just couldn't get it together. They couldn't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness, but instead God was a burden to them. He had become weary to their heart, and therefore the people had become wearisome to him. And now God is simply doing what he promised so long ago. It's coming upon you now. What I said I was going to do, I'm doing to you. I said I was going to bring these enemies whom the Lord will send against you. I told you I was going to send enemies against you, and here they come. The Assyrians, they've already come. You've already seen this in action, and now here come the Babylonians, and you will go into exile. But fear not. But fear not. I am your God, and I will comfort you. I will redeem you. 
how do all these things work together where it seems to be a God who is just beating them down, it seems like, right? But then on the other hand, you have this God who is merciful and gracious and who seems like he's just gonna, he's gonna love them and he's gonna care for them. He's gonna wipe out all their sins and he's gonna redeem them and rejoice with them. Why this back and forth? What's happening here? It's because like we said, there is something being pointed to in the future that makes us feel this tension, this tension of God redeeming a people who would have hearts that are softened. God redeeming a people who would give him true spiritual worship. We're gonna end our time together by looking at some words from the book of Hosea. Hosea. By the way, let me just make a point here. As you're looking for it or you heard Hosea and you thought immediately, I don't know where that is in the Bible, so I'm not going to attempt to find it right now. It's, it's perfectly fine to flip to the front of your Bible and look at the table of contents and see what page it's on and then go directly to it. Uh, just do that if you don't know where it's at. But I'm encouraging you to find it in your Bible and we're going to read a few verses together from it, okay? So Hosea chapter 5. Find Hosea chapter 5. So what we've seen so far is that the people were wearied with God. God was wearied with the people that he's going to forgive all their sins, but then all of a sudden God is now doing what he promised he was going to do by bringing destruction on the people. The question that, the story is going to continue on here, okay? Verse, or chapter 44 is going to kind of continue with this and we'll continue to unpack what exactly is being said. But let's just kind of... It, focus for a moment on the condition of why all this has happened. Why are the people so weary of God and why can't they get it together to just serve him? It seems awfully simple. Just stop serving foreign gods and serve God like he said. It seems very simple. So what's happening with Israel? Hosea 5, if you found it, let's look beginning at verse 4. Oh, I do have it on the screen there as well. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they, they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt, and Judah also shall stumble with them. Who was Isaiah written to? What's the audience? Judah, right? Southern kingdom. Judah will stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he has withdrawn from them. What has caused God to withdraw from the people? So as I told you when we started looking at the book of Isaiah, we learned so much about God's character in the book of Isaiah, and we learn how God operates because we see him dealing with his people. What has caused this, this void between God and the people? Their deeds don't permit them to return to God. It says the spirit of whoredom is within them. They know not the Lord. In other words, they are not faithful to God. 
the pride of Israel testifies to his face. What, what is the big thing that's keeping Israel away from their God? Prideful hearts. And their prideful hearts has caused all kinds of stuff. We see it happening over and over with these people. There is a pride to them, just like we read. They said, God, you're not seeing us properly. And he says, okay, well, present your case before me because maybe I don't remember right. They're seeing themselves as something other than what they actually are. They have a pride about them. And their deeds that flow out from that pride is permitting them to return to their God. So jump just a few verses down to verse 15. We're in Hosea 5 still. They're going to go out to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Just imagine, put yourself in that scenario. The people will go out to seek the Lord, but he's not here. Oh, what a, a terrifying place to be. Just imagine yourself as a young child alone, knowing that you were in danger, and the only one there to protect you was your father, and you run to find him for protection, for help, because he loves you, and you can't find him. Just imagine this entire group of people seeking out their father, and where is he? He is nowhere to be found. It's a tragedy. Hosea 5, 15. I will return again to my place. Oh, that's good news. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. So do you see what it's going to take? for God to return to his place? Do you see what it's going to take? When they acknowledge their guilt and they seek God's face in their distress, earnestly seek him. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Stop right there. Let's just look at those words for just a minute. Do you remember... We're talking about the book of Isaiah, a reoccurring theme is that the Lord sends the people into distress. He sends the people into distress so that they might cry out to him. And the tragic thing again here is that the Lord has sent Israel into distress, but what have they not done? Verse 22, yet you did not call upon me, Jacob. It's back in Isaiah 43. This is the whole issue. God has sent them into distress, but yet you have not called upon me. You have not sought me out. What is God wanting? That they would acknowledge their guilt, that they would seek God's face and in their distress, earnestly seek him. And so then there's a rallying call. Come, let us all return to the Lord for he himself has torn us that he may heal us. See, if you're not torn, why do you need healing? He has struck us down. And he will bind us up. Now, if you've not been struck down, how are you going to be built up? And then here it is. Look at what it says next. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hang on, hang on. Did anybody else see it? 
After two days, he will revive us. And then on the third day, he will raise us up. How did he do that? How did he raise us up on the third day? By raising Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, it says that he had to rise on the third day according to the scriptures. As far as I know, other than the sign of Jonah being in the belly of the whale, this is the only text that talks about Jesus being raised on the third day. So we know that there's a connection between people seeking out God in their distress and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a connection between how God is working with the people. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. And isn't this the resolution that we've wanted all along? This is the solution to all of the problems. God is going to raise us up to life. Let us then press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn, he will come as the showers and the spring rains that water the earth. God is coming to bring life. And you see, that's what all this water stuff means, that God is coming to bring life. Without water, there is no life. And who is bringing life? God is bringing life. How? By raising us on the third day. How do you do that? With Jesus Christ, our Lord. What is the connection here? I understand that in the book of Isaiah, you are confronted with information and history and concepts and tying together loose ends, and near and far prophecies, and I wish this was just more plain. Yeah, some things in the scriptures are hard to understand. And the New Testament bears witness to that. It doesn't mean don't read them and study them. It means that there is something there for us always in every word. I hope you've heard the word today. I hope you have seen how God works. I've hope, I hope that you have seen that God has brought about this resolution that we have been seeking after. Now, I titled the sermon today, Put Me in Remembrance, uh, not just because God said it, but it's because that's what I walked away with for myself. Put me in remembrance of who I actually am. Let me not be the one who has this pride and stiff neck and someone who grieves the Holy Spirit by my pridefulness that I look at God and I say, I deserve better than the life you've given me. I deserve to not be sick. I deserve for things to go better. I deserve for all this to work the way that I want it to work. Why aren't things just going better for me in my life? I deserve better. I deserve better. And then I say, Lord, put me in remembrance. Put me in remembrance of who I actually am before the sovereign Lord. Who am I? And what is man that you are mindful of him? I already said this once, but I'm going to end with a text that is not the one you're in. It's shorter, don't worry. I just, some of our New Testament authors, they, they, they take the concept that we're working through here and they just, in a brilliant way, because it's authored by the Holy Spirit, brings it in such a way that it ties all these concepts together. And this is what I want, because if you're walking, if you're leaving, if you're uh, going home without a clear idea of what you should be taking away from this sermon today, um, uh, that would be worst case scenario for me. People are brought before God, people with a wearied heart. God himself has a wearied heart because the people are sinners. 
But the people don't see themselves as sinners. They see them as righteous, deserving God's favor. And because of that, God sends destruction on them. But God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And that great destruction is not coming upon you. But there is still something for you to do now. See, I, th I think that's a big difference, isn't it? People say, well, I have salvation. I'm not going to be destroyed. No wrath of God for me. So I'm just whatever until I die. Wrong. That is only true if you think God sees you as if you never sinned. That's only true if you think that God has forgotten all of your sinfulness. But there is purpose to your life here and now. God wants you to serve him with a joyful heart. God wants you to be humble before him. Do you know that? God wants you to acknowledge your guilt. Confess your sins to him. He is faithful and just and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to him. That's to believers. So let me just read this text and offer just some brief commentary and we're gonna finish right here. Uh, Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. I like this because it's, it's, kinda, it's just a call to us. And by the way, who's the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews. It's written to Israelites. And what kind of people are they? Stiff neck people. So knowing this, the author says, look at chapter 3, verse 12. It's so encouraging. Just listen to what it has to say. Take care, brothers. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that uh, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Who was all that just spoken to? Believers, believers, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Think back on those rebellious people and don't harden your heart like they did. We read stories about the rebellion of Israel and we think, man, those were bad people. Good thing I'm not like them. Hopefully that's coming full circle now. We look back and we see them and we say, man, they're rebellious people. And look at all the miraculous things God was doing. How could you ever be rebellious against that God? But then our New Testament authors tell us plainly to us, take care lest there be in any of us, any of us, an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. But instead exhort one another. Exhort one another. Do you hear the responsibility placed on every believer? Every believer in this room has a responsibility to exhort each other. Exhort one another to not have an evil, unbelieving heart that's been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Have you ever been deceived by sin in your heart? And do you know the rebellion and that feeling that comes with that? My heart was hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin. I thought it was good, but it's actually evil. And what if there was someone to come alongside you and exhort you and to say, don't do that. That's sin. Follow God. 
we need to be exhorting one another. Would you agree? We don't want this to be us. We don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We want to see what was happening with these people. We want to take it to heart. We want to rejoice in the redemption that we have, that that great destruction is not coming upon us because it came on Christ. But you can't destroy him. That's why he raised on the third day and brought about our redemption. Let's all pray together.